Hello, listeners and fellow explorers. This is Living in the Sprawl's lovely and talented producer-slash-wife, Lisa Steinberg. I wanted to thank all of you for your continuous support of the show. As a new podcast on the scene, John and I self-support the logistics and research that go into the show. The number one way to support the show is to rate, review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Many of you have been doing this, and it has helped immensely. I also invite you to check out our website and the show notes for other ways to support the show. We are currently working with companies we currently use ourselves to get discount codes for our listeners and support the show in the process. These companies include Every Table, Just CBD Store, Gold Belly, Cats Botanicals, and so much more. By using the links on our website, you are letting them know we sent you and in turn supporting the show. You can also support us on Patreon and Podfan. Please check out the website at livinginthesprawlpodcast.com for updates on companies we are working with, our testimonies, links, codes, and new Living in the Sprawl merchandise. Again, thank you to all of you, our lovely listeners, for tuning in every week and allowing us to do what we love. Without further ado, your humble correspondent, John Steinberg. Hello. And welcome to another installment of Living in the Sprawl, Southern California's most adventurous podcast. I am, as always, your humble correspondent and host. My name is John Steinberg, joined by my lovely and immensely talented producer slash wife. Her name is Lisa Steinberg, set to bring you another foray into the grand, expansive, sometimes intimidating world of the Southern California Sprawl. For longtime listeners, you'll know that there are some consistent categories that we always like to address, one of them being true crime. If you go on the iTunes Top 200 chart, roughly 70 out of the 200 shows that you'll find there are true crime related. Whether it's the immense popularity of the Investigation Discovery Network, continuous streams of customers that snap up books by Anne Rule or novels by John Sanford. Americans objectively are enamored with true crime. So today we take a trip down a desolate dark road as we tell you some of the most salacious crime stories to ever happen within Fresno County. Now, the best man at my wedding is from Fresno, and I've spent a considerable amount of time in the Central Valley's most populous city over the course of my life. Fresno gets a bad reputation, and I'm not entirely sure why. Fresno is the 34th biggest city in the United States, and if you look at a list of the largest cities you might be surprised to find Fresno to have a larger population than Atlanta, and it's right behind big population centers like Milwaukee and Baltimore, right behind Tucson, Arizona, where I went to college. If we're talking about Fresno County as a whole, we're over a million citizens. Fresno proper, over 530,000 residents. This is not a small place. This is not flyover country. Fresno has a deep reservoir of history, cultural relevance, 
and its positioning as the linchpin of California's Central Valley make it an indispensable California city. With any city this size, inevitably, there will have been some awful crimes committed. In a prior installment of the program, we looked at the most salacious crimes in the history of the San Fernando Valley. Well, today we are giving that treatment to Fresno, looking at the 10 most salacious crimes that ever happened in Fresno County. And number 10, Dale Ewell, or Ewell, murders three members of his family in 1993. This case has been the subject of at least 10 different episodes of true crime related television programs. I've seen it covered on Behind Mansion Walls, Solved. Honestly, after a while, the names of those programs sort of blend together and you realize that there's only so much they can do with a true crime story aside from merely restating what actually happened. So what did happen? Well, born to a wealthy family, Dale Ewell, on the cusp of graduating college, not having a great deal in the way of prospects for his future, decided to conspire with a close friend to murder his parents and his 25-year-old sister. Why did they do it? You guessed it. Greed. Money. At the time of the murder, the Ewell family was said to hold a fortune of over $7 million, which would be like twice that in 2022 terms. And Dale was corrupted by greed. The murder shocked the greater Fresno area. Both Ewell and his accomplice were ultimately convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And these murders, again, illustrate the point. Greed is never, unlike the advice of Gordon Gekko, good. Greed is never good. Just take it from the story, this tragic story of the Ewell family murders, which came at the hands of Dale Ewell in 1993. Number nine, the murderer of one-time Miss Hollywood, Jill Weatherwax, in March of 1998. Jill Weatherwax came to California from the Midwest, like many, with dreams of stardom and a career in the entertainment industry directly in her crosshairs. Her greatest achievement was when she was crowned Miss Hollywood in the early 90s. But her beauty pageant victory didn't lead to the kinds of film and television roles that the young Michigan native had in mind. She fell in with a bad crowd, started getting involved with less than savory characters in the greater Hollywood area, and as surprising as it is, her 1998 murder has gone unsolved to the present day. Moreover, no one really knows how she wound up in Fresno in the first place. A couple of the crimes that we're going to highlight a little bit later in the show rely on DNA, evidence that came to light long after the events of a particular crime had been committed, 
But in the case of this 25-year-old murder, not only has not a single person ever been apprehended for it, no one even knows how the victim found her way to the scene of the crime, period. Her body was discovered in March of 98, just outside Fresno proper. Her story was highlighted on an episode of E! True Hollywood Stories from 1999. It's kind of difficult to find, but you can track it down if you look. It's one of those awful, tragic tales of a girl from a small town with big city dreams who wound up at the wrong end of the most horrible crime that could possibly be committed. Number nine, the murder of Jill Weatherwax. And number eight, the quadruple murder which occurred in the year of our Lord, 2019, at a football watch party in Greater Fresno. Fresno, as it happens, is one of the it's actually the second largest enclave of the Pyong people, a group primarily drawn from southwestern China and the surrounding areas. So here's what happened. In 2019, a group of around 60 people from the Hmong community gathered to watch the Rams take on the Bears. Roughly at around halftime or in about the third quarter, some of the partygoers had gone inside, I guess not all that interested in the game, leaving around 15 or so all males left watching the contest on a television screen outside. A group of armed individuals stormed the party, shooting indiscriminately at the 15 guys watching the game, killing four and wounding six. In the aftermath of this mass shooting, authorities connected the crime to a squabble between rival gangs. Apparently, the shooting had been committed in retaliation to a murder perpetuated by a rival faction of the Asian Crips. Not long after the murders, six men from the rival gang were apprehended, a seventh would follow, and when it was all said and done, this horrible mass shooting could indeed be traced to a battle between competing gangs of Asian descent in the Fresno area. Number eight, the 2019 mass shooting at the football watch party in Fresno. Number seven, the crimes of one Wilbur Lee Jennings committed in the 1980s. Known as the Ditch Bank Killer, Wilbur Jennings was originally charged with a couple of murders. But after 2001, when DNA evidence linked him with some unsolved homicides, he was charged with a handful of additional murders. Having already been convicted, sentenced, and sent off to face a lifetime prison sentence, Jennings didn't live long enough to face adequate prosecution for the additional murders. He died of complications from prostate cancer and diabetes before he could really face the music for the additional murders. The Ditch Bank Killer, Wilbur Lee Jennings, 
and his dastardly murder spree at number seven. At number six, Stephen David Catlin's murders of multiple wives and his mother in the 1970s and 80s in both Kern County and Fresno. There was actually a terrible made-for-television movie about Stephen Catlin. If you want to dial it up, feel free to. It is called Poisoned by Love, The Kern County Murders, starring Harry Hamlin, who I think would be most famous to our listeners as being the husband of Lisa Renna. That movie came out in 1993. It's really bad. But the story of Steve Catlin is perhaps worthy of another theatrical adaptation. Catlin bounced his way from wife to wife to wife to wife until he reached the number six. Some of these wives passed away and were quickly cremated. Additionally, Catlin's mother also died and her remains were speedily cremated as well. After noticing in a local paper that Catlin's fifth wife had perished, one of his surviving wives alerted authorities saying, I think Steve did this. When authorities untangled everything, Catlin was arraigned on multiple murder charges, being accused of poisoning his mother and three of his wives. His story has been covered by a number of true crime-related programs. It's not hard to find them if you look. It's one of those really bizarre, complex tales that doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you sit down and really study it. And it's hard to put into context because there's no way on God's green earth that this type of crime, I'll call it a spree, could be committed in present times. But Steve Catlin was known by other names and even other identities in the case of some of his partners. So it was very difficult to keep it all straight. Again, we ask ourselves, why did he do it? And we answer in unison, greed. Because, of course, the insurance payouts from his deceased spouses and his mother were obviously the motivation here. This one kind of reminded me of the Michael Peterson case that inspired the staircase, where you think to yourself, how did this guy get away with it? And then you go back to, oh, well, okay, it was the 70s and 80s, long before the advent of the internet and dissemination of information in the way that it's dispersed today. Number six, the poisoning murders of Stephen David Catlin. Number five, the murders commissioned by one Clarence Ray Allen. Clarence Ray Allen had a big ol' ego, and it got bruised when he was dismissed by a local grocer in the Fresno area. Well, rather than bury the perceived insult, Alan decided to escalate the situation by hiring a hitman to go in and actually murder the proprietors of the grocer in question. There were four in total Clarence Ray Allen was sentenced and incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison, where he belongs, and his 
pointless murders led to the betterment of not a single other individual's life. Most of the time, as we've already discussed on this podcast, it's greed that leads those outside the world of criminals to murder. Sometimes an insult is, I guess, sufficient enough. Number four, the 2017 murder spree of Corey Mohammed. The racially motivated murder spree happened in 2017, and it saw an angry African-American Muslim take his rage out on his perceived Caucasian aggressors. He killed three, injured several others, as he indiscriminately targeted white people to murder in Fresno in 2017. When Corey was caught, he readily admitted to the crimes, trying to explain his thinking for what he had done, saying that he had sought to kill white people. White people were the answer to all of his problems and the ones that needed to pay. His harrowing attack on Fresno shocked the community, the sprawl, the state, the nation. Corey Muhammad is now imprisoned for life for the murders. Number three, the murders of one Ray Dell Sims committed during the 1970s in the greater Fresno area. While the 1970s and serial killing in California have a long, illustrious history, most of the time the stories don't incorporate Fresno. It was the 70s when the Golden State Killer terrorized California, the Toolbox Killers, the Hillside Stranglers, Richard Ramirez, etc., on and on, etc., and so forth. Ray Dell Sims isn't one that true crime enthusiasts hear about nearly as much, but his shocking murder spree should be understood by all those that wish to better comprehend what actually happened in California in this homicidal decade. Living under an alias with a wife and child, Ray Dell Sims hit a dark side. Friends and his family knew Dave Gowan, a fry cook at a local restaurant. His victims knew the real man. They knew Ray Sims, who first was sentenced to time in prison for sexually assaulting a 70-year-old woman. And when he got out of prison, living under that alias I mentioned, he murdered four girls in his community. But it was the murder of Janet Hurstein that proved to be his undoing. Hurstein was a 17-year-old student at Roosevelt High School who was on her daily route as a delivery woman. She was a paper woman or a paper girl. But when her body was discovered, just outside the Clovis community, authorities interviewed everyone on her paper route. There was only a single residence that had not received the daily paper on the morning when Janet went missing. And that residence belonged to Dave Gowan, who authorities later identified as Ray Del Sims. After being convicted of the Hurstein murder, Sims was sentenced to life in prison 
But when DNA evidence offered authorities a lifeline into solving decades-old crimes, they were able to attach Sims to three other murders with a similar modus operandi. Anytime you get that mixture of family man with a complete double life hiding the darkest of human secrets, it's a crime worth noting. And it's at number three because the crimes of Ray Del Sims, again, are not ones that typically find their way into discussions around the 1970s serial killing epidemic that infected California. But they should be. They are just as awful, atrocious, horrendous, whatever adjective you'd like to use, as any of the murders committed by the likes of the Hillside Stranglers, etc., etc. Number two, Larissa Schuster's murder of husband Tim Schuster in 2003. This case has been covered by Snapped, Dateline NBC, and at least... 12 other different crime-related television shows. Just a few basics on the case. Here we have the dissolution of a 20-year marriage between Larissa and Tim Schuster. Kids are involved. A custody battle ensues. And Larissa uses her knowledge of laboratories, specifically chemicals used in laboratories, to murder her husband and then dispose of his body in what can best be described as an acid bath. She was actually dubbed the Acid Lady of Fresno. Her court case had to be heard in an outside jurisdiction because of the crime's infamy in local circles. Greed wasn't necessarily the motive here. It genuinely seems... And it seems this way because there are a plethora of voicemails that exist where you can hear Larissa shouting at Tim, making threats, saying he was going to regret how he was acting. And Larissa Schuster enlisted the aid of an accomplice as she carried out her wicked plot. This crime illustrates that even the most suburban, ordinary, all-American seeming of individuals has the capacity for bloodshed. Sometimes when you're watching one of the aforementioned television programs or studying one of the crimes, listening to an audiobook, you'll encounter a tale involving a drifter, a transient person, Someone without a known residence. And you'll think to yourself, oh, well, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But every so often, you run into a scenario like that of the murder committed by Larissa Schuster. A suburban mother in her 40s who seemingly dotes on her son. She'd actually taken him to Disneyland or Disney World right after the murder. Who believed having Tim out of her life forever, and not just in a legal way, was the only path forward that she wanted to traverse. Larissa's accomplice blamed her for driving him to commit the murder alongside the aggrieved lab technician, but both were convicted all the same of the murder and are now serving life sentences in federal corrections facilities. 
And number one, anyone who has ever done a cursory Google search of murder in Fresno will undoubtedly be familiar with this case. It's the familicide of Marcus Wesson, the vampire cult killer of Fresno. These murders happened in 2004. Marcus Wesson, and this case has been profiled in a number of outlets, was the only one left standing after nine family members were killed inside his home. Wesson was not your average criminal. More on the level of a Jim Jones, a smaller scale Heaven's Gate, he was actually presiding over a small cult exclusively comprised of family members who worshipped him, vampires, and were subject to incestuous lives. Wesson at first married and then took his stepdaughter as a wife and then one of his daughters as a wife. And it's one of the grossest true crime sagas you'll ever come across. But in the end, nine members of the Wesson family were dead, surrounded by a flurry of antique coffins, which they were made to sleep inside of. And Wesson's defense was wholly unsuccessful. Marcus Wesson still remains alive on death row, awaiting an execution that will never come at San Quentin State Prison in Marin County. The crimes of Marcus Wesson are, without question, the most hideous, reprehensible, infamous in all of Fresno history. And that's going to do it for another episode of the show. I want to thank everyone for their continued support of the podcast. A couple of ways that you can express that support. Hop on Apple, iTunes, hit that purple icon. Leave us a five-star review, a nice rating. All of that really helps us out a lot in the business end. Our Instagram handle, Living in the Sprawl Podcast. If you'd like to write us, let us know where we made mistakes. If you'd like to applaud us on the show's content, any and any concerns, all of that, please don't hesitate to write us at livinginthesprawlpodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, I want to remind our wonderful listeners about the merchandise available on our website. If you want pens, pencils, mugs, magnets, if you want it and it's Living in the Sprawl related, our website is the place to get it. We've updated our Living in the Sprawl guide so that it reflects all of the episodes that we've done up to this point. The Living in the Sprawl guide is kind of your cheat sheet so that you don't have to go combing through old archived episodes of the program in search of that one specific recommendation that we may have offered from an episode recorded over a year ago. On behalf of myself, your humble correspondent and host, my name is John Steinberg, joined as always by my lovely and talented producer slash wife, her name is Lisa Steinberg, and we want to thank you for joining us on another episode of Living in the Sprawl, Southern California's most adventurous podcast. Talk to you next time.